you aspire to be a superintendent, you think you know what the job might be like, but you may not really know. They bring together like-minded people, as well as organizations that are supporting school systems. And they bring the problem of practice with a group of people to talk through it, and then with vendors who provide solutions. And when you think about a notion of getting better, a lot of times people think that you're sick, but you don't have to be sick to get better. Having either that trusted network of colleagues when you're in practice or prior to practice becomes really important. That's what IEI does. Brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation where like-minded, hard-working professionals come to listen, learn, and connect. This week on Education Thought Leaders. Season four of Education Thought Leaders kicks off with a bang. I'm Doug Roberts, your host, founder CEO of IEI. Very excited to share this, this episode with you at the beginning of our fourth season. This was the fireside chat with U.S. Secretary of Education, Dr. Miguel Cardona, interviewed by our advisor and colleague, Superintendent Emeritus Public Schools, Dr. Mark Benigni. We jump right into the audio here. Uh, this was recorded on July 13th at the Viking Hotel in Newport, Rhode Island. And then you'll hear my voice in there moderating a Q&A with questions from IEI members. So the first voice you hear will be Secretary Cardona's. It was just a thrill to have him uh, and his team were so wonderful to work with. We're just very honored that we got a chance to spend time listening to and learning from the secretary. Uh, and I think we all took away some words of inspiration heading into this school year. Please enjoy this episode and glad you're back for season four. We'll be here all year. Well, first of all, Mark, again, I thank you for the invite. I'm serving at a time where I know that my collective experience in Meriden at the State Department of Education have really helped me. You know, But uh, one of those experiences that he's talking about is uh, I was a first I think it was your first year in the district, maybe my second or third year as principal, and uh, we had a young boy, a four-year-old, brought in some substance, I'll just put it that way, some uh, illegal substance into the school, thinking that it was a snack. <laughs> well, it wasn't a snack. And before I knew it, the news media was setting up shop, and, and Mark and I were sitting in the media center, just saying, okay, who's gonna get in front of the camera? And poor Palma. <laughs> we had a special education director, phenomenal lady, dear friend. We said, I think you'd be best, because I, I, you know, Mark was willing to do the press conference, and he did some of it, but um, I was just taking notes, and uh, it was one of those experiences, but it, it told me then, and you, you mentioned this on the news that day, the importance of our schools, to make sure, number one, we're, we're, we're lifting up the whole community, we're working with families, and we're serving children in whatever way they need. Uh, that, that was also a day that um, you know, taught me that you can never uh, think that your day is gonna go the way you have it planned, right? Uh, the superintendents in the room know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you can write a book on the stories that you've seen. But that was one of the first experiences I had with this guy. And I said, yeah, he stood right there with me. He was willing to help and support. And um, we got through that. And we got through a lot of other things, Mark. De definitely. Miguel was terrific that day. But And then you're dealing with the public. Uh, what are you going to do? How are you going to address the student's behavior? Um, the student's behavior, this was clearly an adult issue, not a student issue. Um, but we rolled the, the podium out, and we did. Poor Palma, our special ed director, she carried some of the, the weight and water with us. But, you know, Miguel, earlier I spoke with the group, and I shared that we always had a lot of fun. Even on the worst days, we, we would leave and, and smile and laugh and really enjoyed uh, working together. Uh, so uh, continuing down that path a little bit, Miguel, 
any strategies that you have seen work well at diversifying the workforce in our schools? And I know that was important to you and Meriden, sure. important to you at the state and obviously key agenda item now. You know, it's important for all of us, right? And, and I said in my remarks, we're at the doorstep of a crisis if we don't do something different. If we do what we've done, I'm telling you right now, I, I tell governors, I tell whoever listens, remember what it was like during Omicron when we couldn't get teachers in the classrooms because there was a 10-day quarantine period? Remember that? I want to help them remember that because it shut down cities again. We are at the doorstep of a crisis if we don't do better. So I'm fortunate I've been able to travel. This is the 34th state that I visited in the last year and four months. And um, it's been amazing. There's certain programs that really stand out. Um, In Tennessee, I saw a program that they're pushing statewide to create a teacher pipeline program that's an apprenticeship, meaning they get paid. So they're working at a state level to do that intentional partnership that I was talking about, uh, to make sure that it's an apprenticeship. Um, Amazing. I was in uh, Nevada at a high school. You know, we talk about CTE all day, right? Why aren't we thinking about the teacher profession as a pipeline too? Like, let's think about that career as uh, as an opportunity to develop in our schools. Well, they did that very well. They had a teacher whose job was to teach classes for pre-service teachers in high school. They had a connection Um, with a university that was receiving these students after high school, getting them credits and getting them back to teach in the district. There's a district in New Jersey that worked with the college also to have such a tight partnership where the students were offered a job. The guarantee was that they were gonna be offered a job when they graduate that program. Um, I've seen programs statewide, Mark, that pay teachers for student teaching. Look, there are more options out there now. We have to think differently. And um, I've talked to a lot of pre-service teachers that said, look, I, I can't afford to do student teaching. <laughs> I can't. So they pick something else. So let's get ahead of this. Let's, let's control the narrative on how we're going to bring folks into the teaching profession so that we're not reacting to somebody else saying, look at what's happening. Nobody wants to go into the profession. Let's innovate our way out of this, knowing that for the next two to three years, we can really seed programs using the American Rescue Plan dollars to pay for student teachers or to pay for some of these pipeline programs that extend beyond K-12 into the four-year schools. How do you think, Miguel, how do you think we can get more high school students our own children to consider education as a profession of choice? You know, look at the profession. Um, our teachers are stressed. Yeah. If you were 15, 16, and you, you see your teachers giving up their prep period because they have to cover a class because we don't have enough teachers, working Uber on the weekends so they can make ends meet, that's, that's not selling the profession well. We're trying to lift the profession. We're calling out places where Teachers, you know, with a master's degree are earning $30,000, $40,000. That's not going to cut it. We're never going to improve and, and recruit into this profession if we don't have competitive salaries. If we don't have working conditions where teacher voice is embedded in the growth and improvement, we've, we've done it. I'm not asking anyone to do anything that we, couldn't, we haven't done. And I've seen amazing examples across the country. But if we're not going to lift the profession and make it some a profession that our students are looking at and saying, oh, I want to do this, then we're missing an opportunity. And as I said before, I see pockets of excellence in this country of uh, grow your own programs or, um, you know, teacher, those, those clubs, after school clubs or a class or two where they can learn about child development. But we really need to double down on making sure we have a clear pathway to a credential 
uh, for these students early on. We need to work with partners to make sure that uh, we're helping our students save money to go through that program. And we have diversity in front of us. Our students are our greatest assets. We need to tap into them a lot more, create real programs that lead to jobs, and, and commit to seeing them through. When they graduate from our schools with the higher education institutions, we have to work partnerships there too to make sure that they can come back to become teachers in three to four years. What advice would you give to someone who's in their first year of teaching? And you have to share a little bit about the bus tour that you did when you were in Meriden. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, for me, look, I, I mentioned my hometown, and I see our board chair, Robert Kaczynski over there, um, who, uh, you know, He's married in DNA through and through. <laughs> I say the community raised me, right? I live there. I still live there. My kids go to school there. That's home. And that's important for me to say because that community had everything I needed to be secretary of education. It did. And it's important for me to have an asset mentality in all that we do. Oftentimes, especially in bilingual education, there's a deficit mentality. Kids are coming with something. The, te the reason why I became an educator is because somebody tapped me on the shoulder, a teacher, and said, I think you could be a great teacher. So Meriden, to me, there's so many assets. So what we do is teacher orientation. I, I was assistant superintendent. I had like half a day with the teachers right before lunch. You know, they're hungry. So I said, what am I going to do with them? Am I going to talk to them? And they're going to forget what I say. I put them on a yellow school bus, and we got a tour of the community. And I showed them the half a million dollar houses, and I showed them the projects. And I said, they're going to be in your classroom in two weeks together. What are you going to do? And that's what I'm asking the country to do now. We're in this together. How do we use our schools to create community? So um, yeah, those same values that I learned there uh, have driven me where I am today. And uh, th those experiences help kind of share that. I do believe the teaching profession is the best profession. But we have to look at our schools. We have to look at our communities as assets. You know, earlier, uh, Dr. Cardona, we had asked everyone that be comfortable sharing their own stories. How can we encourage? We all have that story to share, and if all of us go back to our home community, share it with our administrative team, share it with our teacher, share it even with our students. Uh, I think, look, at you made the joke, we're all still smiling, and I think we wouldn't be doing this work if there wasn't a passion and love, and there's some jobs that we can prepare our students for that they're not going to get that same rewards that you get from education. I'm just worried that we we as an education community let folks know it's a great profession, it's a calling, and there's no profession where you can make a bigger difference in the lives of, of, ch of children. Totally. Absolutely, and um, if we're not cheerleading for the profession, who will? If we're walking around moping and like, oh, woe is me, look how bad things are. No, the best days are ahead of us. I have more confidence in our future in education than ever before, and I'm okay. Let, let education be the topic of conversation when there's division. At least they're talking about education. Who better than you to insert your opinion as experts in education? Oftentimes, educators take a passive role and we just respond or we react. No, it's time to lead. We have an opportunity to lead and redefine what education can be. And that's why I said the biggest innovation we could do is ensure that every child believes that they can achieve. And what better time in our country's history to be in education and leadership than now. So we're here to talk about innovation. 
You've been to 34 states. Share with us some of the best innovations or things that you think we need to know about. You know, the big rocks for me are always going to be addressing the achievement disparities, creating uh, career pathways, um, uh, to, to, you know, making sure that our schools are more responsive to the, the realities out there. That means connecting with higher ed institutions, with workforce partners. That's really important to me, lifting the profession, ensuring that our students have a chance to compete internationally. We need to be more multilingual, right? But some of the things that really stood out to me, um, in Michigan, I went to a high school with 6,000 students. Can you imagine that? They were spread out in three different campuses. We talk a lot about mental health supports and ensuring that as we you know, reopen or reimagine schools, mental health access and supports and social emotional well-being is the foundation of our uh, uh, efforts. Well, this school took that seriously and they changed the high school schedule for every one of those 6,000 students. A period schedule to have at least one period for social emotional well-being and or mental health support access every day for every high school student. That's real. That's real. Um, we, I see schools that are sending students out to internships, getting credits. They're just revisiting all these rules that were set before the pandemic and said, we need to just revisit it. Our students excelled when they had opportunities to get out. Why are we going back to the system where they're sitting in a chair for six hours when there's internships available, when workforce partners are, look, are dying to have students in there learning the craft? I've seen programs where um, you know, manufacturers are providing K-12 systems with multi-million dollar machines so that the students can learn coding to code that machine. And then when those students do that, they credential them, they hire them, they pay for their higher education. These programs are out there, but what we need to do as leaders is, as I said earlier, systematize it so that it's not dependent on superheroes. Often in education, we're dependent on superheroes. And when the superhero walks away, the system falls apart. True innovation is systemic thinking so that it outlasts you in your role. So in, in our country, we have, as I said, pockets of excellence. What we're trying to do is learn, right? So I'll take that district in Michigan, I'll lift up that example, and I'll say, how could you make that viable in your district? How could we support that? That's what we need to be doing at the state level, at the national level, and certainly at the district level. And I know you've always said education is more than the teachers, administrators, it's our classified staff, it's our food service workers who did an amazing job during this pandemic. And when you were principal at Hanover, you had an amazing cafeteria team that would decorate the calf, but, but you have to share your best costume because it may be the best picture that I have with you. Do you remember? Well, that's why I came here because Mark has pictures. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I, I would always say, I, I, when I taught, I taught um, pre-service principals at the university level. And um, I said, you know, you've heard it a million times, culture eats strategy for breakfast. If you don't have a culture where students want to be, parents want to be, staff want to be, then you're going to limit your, your ability for growth and academic achievement. Uh, the cafeteria staff at Hanover Elementary School, uh, led by Shirley Arabaz, it's always good to publicly praise. Um, they created a culture there where they themed the cafeteria. They did more for the culture and climate of my school than I did as principal. And sometimes as a leader, the best thing you do is just get out of the way. Yep. Just let them go. 
These are people that were committed to the school. They were there on the weekends. So, you know, with our contract, they go, we just look the other way. You know, hey, you need a key? You might find one here. They would decorate the cafeteria, and it'd be a wonderland for students. So I was uh, Captain Hook, and you came in one year, and I have a picture of me putting a hook. But one year I was a, uh, a Flintstone, and another year I was... But at the end of the day, as Mark said, we work with children. If you can't smile working with children, get another profession. If we can't model that our job is to serve children and to serve the people that serve children in partnership with families, you're in the wrong business. So creating a culture and recognizing, as you said, that oftentimes it's those special people that are in those buildings that choose to be there for $10 an hour. They choose to come in every day. That we need to be thinking, how do we lift you up? How do we help you get your degree? How do we help? And you want to be here. You're not going to leave this district. So it's looking at our folks as assets, as you've done in Meriden, and, and that works. The districts in my 34 state visit and in my college visits, the districts and universities that stayed open, that opened quicker, that were successful, were the ones that embraced community, that realized that they were a part of something bigger in the community, and that they looked at each one of their uh, staff members as assets. Those were the ones that got on the bus to drop off meals the first month, or they set up shop on the weekend so kids had something to eat over the weekend. Those are the people that are coming back to our schools now. What are we doing differently for them to show them that now we honor them? A great time to be in uh, leadership right now. Well, Miguel, thanks so much. And uh, you've been a great colleague and an even better friend to me. And uh, I'll tell you one thing that I think we can all agree on, that the president made a great choice in choosing you as his Secretary of Education. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm blessed. I, I feel honored. I'm humbled. You know, um, at the end of the day, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Uh, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. And um, it's very humbling to be in this position. But I know, um, you know, talking to educators and, and seeing the work that you're doing, it really motivates me. We've got a lot of work to do. A lot of our kids are under attack. Um, you know, this country needs strong leaders, people that are going to embrace all students, even people with different perspectives. That's okay. Let's show this country how educators, we unite our country and we could uh, bring our country together. You are uh, going to be responsible for our country's healing, and I want to support you. I want to stand behind you. Thank you. So now I'm going to have Doug Roberts come back, and uh, our membership had sent in a few questions that the secretary's graciously agreed to uh, take tonight. Thank you so much, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Dr. Benigni. Um, so many of these questions were, uh, we asked the membership to submit questions, and many of them, we, we got several different forms of the same questions, so I'm going to sort of read an amalgamated paraphrase on some of these. So this, this is one of those. We're going to start with funding, if it's okay, Mr. Secretary. So a bunch of our members asked this question. Would it be something like this? Would it be possible to extend the opportunity to spend current federal COVID relief dollars beyond 2024, or will there be new dollars to continue their relief efforts? Yeah, that's a question that I get a lot. And, and just so you know, monthly I meet with what I call the... Uh, Education alphabet soup, right? The superintendents group, uh, the uh, chiefs group, the teachers groups, um, you know, great city schools. We meet to have these conversations. And, and in my visits, I've talked to superintendents who uh, are also asking me these questions on the ground. And I can tell you this. Um, I'm going to fight to make sure that we can have funding for you as long as I'm secretary of education. The American Rescue Plan dollars came in at a critical time to help our country recover. I'm gonna remind you, I don't have to remind you, but I will. Half of Congress didn't vote for it. 
And there are so many that are waiting for you to have money in your coffers in 2024 so they can say, look, they didn't need it. Let's take advantage of this opportunity to reimagine education. Be bold with it. Our kids need 200,000 students are going back into our schools having lost a parent or caregiver because of COVID. So if we think that one more social worker for the district is going to cut it, I'm sorry. It's not enough. Our kids need help now. Achievement gaps are worse than any other time when, as educators. What are we doing? We need that money now. Our kids, our families need that money now. With that said, I recognize that some districts have challenges with supply chain issues as they're trying to fix systems that have had deferred maintenance for 20, 30 years. I've walked into some schools. It was sad. I wouldn't want my own kids in there. There was no airflow. They're like in big closets. So they're getting attention to that. And I recognize that a lot of those materials are on back order. So where I have authority, I'm pushing for extensions where I can. But this is set by Congress. And Congress is watching. And as I said before, many are not even thinking about an extension. They're saying you shouldn't have that money. They want to repurpose it for something else. So it's really important, educators and leaders, to recognize the political landscape here, that we have a period of time to do something major in education. We do what we've done, we're going to get what we've gotten. Let's think big. And yes, the money's not a, a down payment for the next 10 years. No, it's a recover from the pandemic. Let's recover from the pandemic. But I can tell you, and if you're paying attention, you'll see, our budgets in 22 and 23 have had greater proposed increases for Title I which is long-term money. For IDEA, which is long-term money. We see you, we hear you. The president has, in the proposal, it's half a billion dollars for community-based wraparound services. We hear you. We know we need to do this. This has to be the norm now. Uh, $200 million proposed for career-connected learning. So we can talk about those CTE programs, teacher pipeline programs. We want there to be long-term, but right now, if we're not fighting for utilizing that ARP dollars to help kids now, help families now, the recovery of this pandemic is gonna take longer than it needs to. Our kids are hurting, they need it now. And my fear, I said it in the, my remarks, we fought COVID for two years, let's fight complacency with that same fervor, that same urgency that we fought COVID over the last two years. That means using the money now. Thank you. Uh, this question comes from Dr. P.J. Capozzi, the superintendent of Meridian School District in Illinois. Yeah, that's Dr. P.J. Um, so he wrote, one of the stated priorities of the secretary was combating COVID and the federal government has spent approximately $190 billion to do so. I have several derivative questions from there. How is the department going to measure whether this was successful or not? How will this, the U.S. Department of Ed be doing spending analysis to determine if things such as HVAC, over 30% of the dollars spent on that, need a more concentrated and systematic effort to be improved throughout our nation's schools? And that's a good question, and I, and I love that question. I want us as leaders also to make sure in our communities we're communicating with the public how the money is being used, um, or else. I can tell you right now, if, we don't, if we're not clear with our stakeholders how the money's being used, I can tell you the appetite for funding education is gonna dry up in this country. So we're responsible for communicating with our stakeholders. So about 130 billion in uh, K-12 education. Um, another 40 in higher education. Of that 40 billion, 20 billion, half of that, had to go directly to students. So let me ask you this, imagine the headlines today 
if those dollars didn't go there. We'd be talking about which colleges are closing, which teachers were laying off. There would be no path to teacher pipeline programs. Students' class sizes would be worse. We went from 46% of our schools open uh, when the president took office. 46% of our schools nationwide were open uh, full-time to over 99. My staff tells me not to say 100. 99 plus in November, um, despite Delta, and then after, despite Omicron, because of these resources, because we were able to hire additional staff, have better uh, uh, ventilation in our buildings. And um, what we're doing is we've, without Congress having Author, like required of us to do this, we've set up several systems of accountability to make sure that the money's being drawn down on the things that we know are gonna make a difference. You know, um, and we're in this together, right? We need to make sure we're communicating with the community not only what we value as education leaders and what they need, whether it's academic recovery, which is critically important, uh, mental health supports, uh, systems upgrade. As I said before, I've been into some buildings that you know, the system wasn't working, the airflow, it was just bad, it was unhealthy. So there, there are investments there. We do quarterly monitoring uh, globally, and we do targeted monitoring if we have concerns or if we see that there's not drawdown. And we've even brought uh, members of our team to districts to work with them. This is really about capacity building, because I'm gonna tell you, and I'm sure in Illinois and across the country, Superintendents are never used to having another $100 million thrown at them and say, hey, you got three years. That's, that's not something that you learn in superintendent school. You learn how to do more with less, right? So it's really important that not only do we hold folks accountable for drawing down the money on the things that matter most, but also support them to build capacity to address some of those needs in the timeline that they have. That's a great question. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, we had several questions on preschool. Um, do, will there be any uh, funding opportunities to support expanding preschool education? You know, <clears throat> when I served as principal, I had a program for children uh, once they turned three years old, uh, early childhood uh, to five, and it was an elementary school, so we had them until about 11 years old. I'll tell you right now, uh, early childhood education is critical, and um, it's one of those things, if you pay now or pay later, um, you know, in the Build Back Better proposal, we had uh, a proposal for universal, for access for all students across the country. And while we know that it didn't make it, that doesn't mean we're stopping. We're continuing to fight for funding uh, for programs that support early childhood education. And um, we're continuing to push those models too. And in this budget proposal, there's money for wraparound services and programs with community partners so that early childhood programs could be connected earlier to our K-12 systems because we serve those children eventually, so the more we work with them, the better. We're continuing to fight for that in our uh, uh, yearly budget. Great, how about three more, does that work for you? Yeah. Three more questions, okay, great. Um, we're, we're gonna uh, pivot to, to the equity work. This is uh, from James Tager, Superintendent Banger, Maine. Thank you, James. What type of support can the department provide for the important work we are doing in the area of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in terms of endorsing the work professional learning, and navigating the politics. Thank you. Thank you for that question. You're from Maine? Yeah, Pender and I worked, Angelica, Pender, and the New England Chiefs, we would get together like once a week on a Zoom call, and it was part strategy during the pandemic, part therapy, like, oh, <laughs> you know, we're not alone. Um, the work of equity, and uh, sadly, in some parts of our country has, uh, is now being lumped into some of the culture wars, and as disappointing as it is, um, I think this is an opportunity for us. 
equity shouldn't be uh, somebody's job or a thing that we do on Friday afternoons at a meeting. It should be the lens through which we see everything. So in April, the Department of Education published this past April, we published a report on uh, our equity plan. And I, I encourage everyone to, to look at it because it, it shows how we're, every dollar that we're pushing out there has to help address the inequities that exist. Um, it's either you're fighting for it or fighting against it. There's no middle. So as challenging as it's become, because it's become sometimes politically laden, it's really important to remember stories. I shared with you my story. I was that second language learner whose grandparents came here for a better life. Everyone wants children to succeed. So my, my suggestion here is to continue to fight and lift the stories of our students, the students you serve, but be unapologetic about it. You know, one thing we did in, in Meriden that I'll share that I brought to the state level and then now at the national level, we're doing more. Um, as a matter of fact, tomorrow we're gonna be releasing some information around um, disaggregating data, uh, exclusionary data for students of color. Are we looking at that data, making that public, our exclusionary data uh, based on different demographics of students or needs of students? You know, as a leader, we have an opportunity to, to do those things. In, in Meriden, we did that. And I met with principals monthly, and I looked at their data, and I said, you're growing. You're doing better. Or you're having a pocket here. How can I support you, number one? But what are we going to do about this? That's unacceptable. So we have to lead unapologetically around equity. We have to lift up stories. At the end of the day, we all want children to succeed. And we have to be honest about what we're working with. One of the priorities... Uh, through the American Rescue Plan is to ensure that those areas that were hit the hardest by the pandemic get the most support right away. That's why I say fair is not always equal. Some communities, we were all affected by the pandemic, some more than others. And it's really important as we accelerate recovery, we think about that and we're honest about that. And the more we put faces of students and, and stories of students and families at the forefront, the more people realize we're on the same page. Thank you. Uh, this question comes from Cynthia Ritchie, Superintendent, New London P Public Schools in Connecticut. Cynthia, are you here? Where are you? Hey, hey there you are. You are. <laughs> nice to see you. All right, she writes, can discussions please begin to happen regarding how to define and measure the success of a student aligned to a holistic approach and multiple pathways in the 21st century? The current milestones do not measure the true story of a child's trajectory, growth, and progress. And she says she would be happy to serve on a committee that collaborates around this. Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> Cindy's a good friend. We worked together uh, when I was in Connecticut, and I appreciate your leadership, Cindy. So, look, uh, you know, ESSA sets things that we can't change, kind of like the ARP, you know, what, what Congress set. But I will tell you, uh, as an educator, um, there are so many different, there are more authentic ways to assess what students are learning and how they're growing. As a matter of fact, I think if we over-rely on uh, a standardized number, we're failing our students. If we put scarlet letters on schools that are working twice as hard to help that kid make the grade, and, and we're putting scarlet letters or calling schools failing, we're missing the point. I was a principal of a very high-performing school that had children in the bilingual program. And because there were more than 40 students in that bilingual program who were growing at twice the rate of other students but didn't hit that mastery mark, 
back in the early 2000s, the school was labeled a failing school. And I worked, I had to work twice as hard to create a culture where no, these kids are growing. If we look at growth, they're growing more than others. And I also think we need to be more curriculum embedded in our students should be assessed without knowing they're being assessed. Formative assessments, performance-based assessments. So I, I, it's funny, you know you're with superintendents when they clap for assessment questions. Um, <laughs> look, I get it, I get it. And we are, uh, we are working on not only pilots, we have a pilot with seven states, but we're looking at grants that will support districts that are being creative, thinking outside the box. As, a, as I said before, as a principal of a school with bilingual education students, the, I know that standardized test didn't measure what they're, what they're about, what they learned, and what they can do. And we have to do better. I feel like sometimes it's the cart leading the horse. We have to do better making quality instruction and pedagogy. That's the core. Assessments should naturally assess what students are learning and what I need to do as an educator to help students grow. Um, we have work to do there. And um, we're committed to doing it at the Department of Education with your input. Thank you. Um, and this last, did, did Renee from Richmond Heights, Ohio, did you get here? Is she here? She's stuck at LaGuardia. Okay, back home. Been My there, home. done that, yeah. Well, she asked a nice question I think can send us out of here with some hope. So uh, I'd like to end with it and we'll honor her. Even though, so this is from R Renee Willis, the superintendent of Richmond Heights, Ohio. Um, Derek Black, in his book, Schoolhouse Burning, states, the full-scale assault on public education threatens not just public education, but American democracy itself. For those of us in the trenches trying to stave off this full-scale assault, what words of encouragement or advice can you give us? There are 50 million reasons you should get up every day and fight. There are 50 million students in our K-12 system that are counting on us. And as Mark said before, you know, teaching... And, and leading in, in education, it's a calling. It's, it's, it's an extension of who you are. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, you're gonna have people coming at you. But it's on us to change that culture. It's on us to control the narrative of how education is the great equalizer. I'm living proof that it is. You have examples that are more extraordinary than me of where it's making a difference. And we believe that education can give students opportunity to go from you know, being born and, and living in a, in a, on a housing projects and bouncing around because his father's looking for work to helping the president of the United States frame a message around education for the country, the best country in the world. Public education did that. And we're a part of that. There's no other profession that's better than it. So my message to all of you is, look, I always said, after the pandemic, it's not gonna get easier. It's gonna get different. Let's roll up our sleeves. As I said before, we have more money in education now. We have freedom to innovate. Our kids are waiting for us and our country's waiting for us. I really firmly believe education and our educators are gonna be leading the recovery of this country and leading the healing. And um, I wanna stand behind you in that. So let's roll up our sleeves. They're waiting for us. Let's not let our students down. That's my message. This has been Education Thought Leaders, brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation. The superintendents, we don't have peers, Doc. We, you can have people who support you, but no one's that's in your seat. Talking about shared solutions, talking about collaborating at a very, very high level. So coming here kind of gives you a little rejuvenation, that little pick-me-up. Superintendents and vendors from across the country 
and that the whole exploration and development of new partnerships is critical.